quite amazing, this is gathering again for the last 24 years. A group of people, and in these latter years, about a hundred of us have gathered together for something quite extraordinary. You know, given the busyness and sometimes insanity of our life in the world, the gathering here and coming together to spend either six weeks or three months, really in the practice of what is of the greatest value, the highest value. It's a tremendous thing. And this hall has been host you know, to 23 years of three-month courses. Nice. The very first three-month course we did was in Bucksport, Maine, before we established IMS. And we really had no idea what we were doing. There was no orientation days. There was no integration week at the end. So people came, sat down, the retreat ended, they left. <laughs> and there were casualties all up and down the East Coast. <laughs> you know, these mad yogis <laughs> let loose. Uh, so we have learned a little bit uh, over these last 24 years just to, you know, how to organize things a bit better at least. Um, and in that respect, I think these two days of orientation uh, are very helpful. You know, just a chance to get here, to arrive, to settle in, to meet each other, to meet your fellow yogis. And also, as I think Michelle probably mentioned last night, um, a chance to finish all your business. There's usually you know, odds and ends that are left over uh, in all the activity of getting here. It's very helpful if you can actually tie all those loose ends up uh, before tomorrow night. So I'd encourage you, whether it's a phone call or letters or whatever it may be, if you need to get anything in town you know, to go and do it. Because tomorrow night something very special happens. You know, a bell rings, we come into the hall, take the refuges, take the precepts, and it's like entering a whole other realm, a whole other land, another world. And it's a world of silence. It's a world of solitude. And it's a world of tremendous immediacy of experience. Now, mostly, as, as we all know in our lives, our attention is so often scattered by all the, the busyness of our lives. And we enter this land of silence tomorrow evening, it's like dropping into this place where experience becomes so vivid and so immediate. And the gift of being able to inhabit this land for six weeks or three months is really quite extraordinary. Now, there are very few people on this planet who, for whatever combination of conditions and causes and aspirations and motivations who have this opportunity to do it. It's, it's really a great, great blessing. It's really a time 
Now that in a very undistracted way we come face to face with ourselves because there's very little diversion. The noteboard is about as much diversion as you're going to get, <laughs> which can be considerable actually <laughs> if you're not careful. But it's really, you know, just dropping into this space of undistracted attentiveness. In many ways, I see this meditation practice, this Dharma practice of liberation, of awakening, as really being the master game of life, because it's about the discovery of the nature of life itself. You know, we begin to emerge from our stories, from the drama of our stories a bit, and we begin to investigate and explore very directly and immediately, not theoretically, just through immediate direct experience, what is the nature of this body? What is the nature of the mind? How do we get caught up in suffering, you know, in conflict? What is the possibility, the real, genuine possibility of being free? These, these are the questions you know, that the Dharma provides a context for understanding. What is the nature of awareness itself? It's just so rare. You know, people may have these thoughts passing in their lives, and really you know, may have a sense you know, of the deeper questions, but have no opportunity or no method or no way to actually touch them deeply. And yet, in some way, for all of us here, these conditions have been created for doing precisely this. As most of you know, as inspiring as this prospect may be of really coming face to face with ourselves honestly and openly, it's not easy. Tremendously challenging task. You're probably familiar with the example the Buddha gave, you know, somebody being surrounded on a battlefield by a thousand enemies and somehow overcoming them and doing that a thousand times and overcoming a thousand enemies a thousand times. The Buddha said that's easier than what we're about to embark on. That's one side. <laughs> the other side, and uh, very grateful for it, is that the Buddha actually pointed out the way to do it. There is a way to see through, to cut through, to understand all of the hindrances, all of the things which obscure wisdom, you know, which contract the heart. But the process is not easy. It's a tremendous challenge as we come face to face with all the tremendously deep forces of conditioning that are within us. And the conditioning goes very, very deep. And so it takes uh, very strong commitment and willingness to practice, to look, to explore, to develop the tools of mind that enable us to see deeply. This is the work you know, of the retreat. 
I think it's helpful to consider right in the very beginning, to reflect a little bit about where this commitment can come from. The commitment to do this very transformative work. What can we draw on to sustain our energy in this practice over this extended period of time? For me, one of the tremendous sources of energy for practice is the quality of interest. Just often, you know, in, in the face of difficulty in my practice or in my life, the question will come to mind, what is going on? <laughs> you know, what is going on here? What is happening? How am I getting caught? Can I release? Can I let go? And the quality of interest actually arouses the energy to look, to look deeply and carefully. It's that attitude that says whatever happens, you know, whether it's very pleasant or very unpleasant, it's painful, it's interesting, it's boring, whatever, whatever arises in my experience, Can I open to it? Can I be with it? Can I see it? Can I understand it? If we bring that quality to the practice rather than one of continually judging or assessing this is good, this is not good, it should be happening, it shouldn't be happening, you will save yourself a lot of unnecessary suffering. If you can come back again and again to this place of interest. Okay, what is this? Whatever it is. The basis for this interest, and it's an inestimably helpful quality, the foundation, we could say, of this interest is the quality of metta, you know, of softening of heart, of loving kindness, metta towards ourselves, metta for everyone here. There's a line from an old samurai poem, just one line in the poem. I make my mind my friend. If nothing else were accomplished in these six weeks or three months, but we made our minds our friend, it would be a tremendous accomplishment. Because we change the attitude with which we're holding the entire range of our experience. And there will be the range for everybody. There will be ups and downs and times when you're feeling good and bad and depressed and lonely and excited and exhilarated and doubting and all of it. It's all going to come. Can we settle back with interest and openness and metta, loving kindness, making a friend of our minds? Tremendously helpful. You know, and it really gives us then the strength and the energy and the willingness to continue. The second big support for sustaining the energy of investigation and for deepening it, something I think Michelle talked about a bit last night and will again on Monday. I just want to mention very briefly tonight 
And that is cultivating the spirit of renunciation. When you read the Buddhist teachings, the actual words of the Buddha, this spirit of renunciation is absolutely central because it's the freeing of our mind from addiction. Renunciation is not the burden. Renunciation is the freedom from the habits, the many habits of addiction and clinging that we have. So what kind of renunciations you know, will come up and uh, you'll be exploring? A very fundamental one, and this has tremendous consequences for our practice and also our lives, is for this period of time at least, renouncing pleasure as being the guiding principle of our lives and choices. To really let it sink in deeply that what we're doing is not to simply acquire more pleasant feelings. But this is very hard, (laughs) because we like pleasant feelings. But that's not what the practice is about. Because as you know very well, these pleasant feelings, whether they're kind of worldly pleasant feelings or spiritual, meditative pleasant feelings, they don't last. It's not where freedom is to be found. And so, someplace deep in ourselves, we need to recognize that, reflect on it, and renounce that as being the guiding principle. It's not that a lot of pleasant feelings will come in these next weeks. But what we're really cultivating is the quality of openness. We're making our minds and hearts as vast as the sky that can hold everything. It holds what's unpleasant and painful. It holds what's pleasant and blissful. But it holds it from a place of openness and non-attachment. Something which will ease your time in this very deep and transformative meditative process is the remembrance that enlightenment or liberation is not about what we get, but how much we can let go of. Because so often we use our practice, it's like Mara has co-opted our practice, and we're practicing in order to get something, some idea we have of enlightenment or samadhi or bliss or whatever it is. And if we can just remember that liberation is about how much we can let go of rather than what we can get, it allows us to be open to the whole changing range of experience. Because we're not fighting then, we're not in conflict. We know it's not about getting something we don't have and all the stress that comes from that. It's about relaxing the heart. It's about letting go, non-clinging, non-attachment to this endless procession of experience. And that can be accomplished in any moment. That possibility of letting go is always there. 
You don't have to wait three weeks into the retreat in order to build up to it. It's simply remembering. It's about not holding on. What's amazing is that these basic principles of Dharma are so simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. You know, it's not complicated, and so we just need to reflect on it a bit, remember, you know, and come back to these understandings again and again. One of the things that can happen, and we'll be talking much more about it as the retreat goes on, and which requires a great deal of clarity and renunciation, is the yogi mind phenomena. I don't exactly know why it happens, but it's very well documented. You know, it's kind of just sitting and something will come up in the mind and we'll start obsessing about something that we have to do or have to have. And I have to have this particular brand of toothpaste or... (laughs) It's quite amazing because from this perspective, not having yet entered Yogi Land, oh no, that's not going to happen to me. It will. (laughs) So I'm just... (laughs) see if you can remember to pay particular attention when your mind gets obsessive about something (laughs) and for the most part just chalk it up as yogi mind you know and see if you can let it go As I say, as we get into the retreat, we'll be talking more about this because uh, it will be coming up a lot. The Buddha emphasized a lot, and this is kind of the flip side of renunciation. He spoke so often about the peace and the happiness of contentment, of the mind that is actually contented in the experience of the moment. It's not looking for something else for fulfillment. That the fulfillment is right here in the true relationship to what's arising. It's not about having something else that somehow is going to do it for us. Now, And so in your time, it's as if we've created for this period of time, it's almost as if IMS has become one of the great meditation monasteries of Asia. We're we're creating that for ourselves here. At the heart of all great monasteries is the spirit of renunciation and contentment. When we begin to let go, at least to some extent, of the obsessive nature of our desire systems, realizing that that is not where happiness is to be found, and we know it because we've tried it. We've probably lived a good part of our lives trying it. There's some wisdom that has brought us all here, some very deep wisdom, 
or you wouldn't be here. And this is not most people's idea of a vacation. So something, there's, there's some very extraordinary power in, in all of us that, that brings us here and sees the value. Contentment and renunciation, simplicity, these are all the, the virtues that make for the growth of wisdom and understanding. So there's renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle. You know, it's not that we withdraw from it, it, it will come. But that's not, what's, that's not what's guiding us in our choices. Renunciation of our ideas of ourselves. Now probably all of us here come in to the practice and into the retreat with some notions you know, of who we are and how we are and how our minds are and Can we let go of all of that? Self-image is like, I know when I was a kid, you know, at camp, they used to give us these molds that you poured plaster of Paris into. Self-image is like that mold. We pour ourselves into a little preconceived mold and then we wonder why we feel constricted. Now that's what self-image does to us. The practice is really, in this time of retreat, it's an invitation to break out of that mold, just to be here in the moment, in the freshness of the moment, what's arising. Let me see the whole range of what's in there. It's quite, quite amazing, you know, because we, we begin to push edges and boundaries that really have held us in. Krishnamurti has a wonderful phrase for this. He talks about freedom from the known. Now, and that's what our practice is about, to get free of the known and really to open to an amazing mystery. Now, the mystery of the mind, the mystery of consciousness, which is far beyond any small contracted self-image we might have of ourselves. That's another kind of renunciation. Just now, just be here, open to whatever happens, without assessment, without evaluation, you know, without a lot of judgment about what's arising. Yes, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And in that openness, whole new worlds of experience and understanding begin to happen. It's also a renunciation, renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle in our life, to the renunciation of self-images. It's also the renunciation of many of our familiar supports. And that's, in one way, what gives the retreat such power. For this time, really renouncing family and friends and things that you're familiar with. In the Buddhist text, it often talks about the tremendous value of leaving home, even of leaving your country, leaving your culture. Well, in a way, you've done that. Certainly left your home. And IMS is its own culture. And you really honor that renunciation and for this period of time actually delight in it. 
know, it just gives you a space of tremendous uh, freedom. In that regard, and again, I don't know whether Michelle spoke of this last night or not, one of the things that I found in my time in Asia, in the different monasteries, one of the greatest disruptions of practice uh, was writing and receiving letters. You know, and after a while I just stopped because each time it just set the mind spinning again and kind of reconnecting me with all of those uh, issues in the world that in fact did not need my attention. We're not as indispensable as we might like to think. The world goes on fine. I remember being in India in Bodhgaya, quite, quite uh, apart from any news of the world, and there would be old time on Newsweek, you know, several years old, and I'd read them, and then I'd come home sometimes for a few months to work and read time. It's the same stuff. <laughs> Enjoy this space, you know, of being free from all that for a while. And so I would very much encourage you, unless, you know, there's some absolutely essential emergency thing that you have to do, don't violate your own space of solitude and silence, because it is so rare and it is so precious, very hard to create this kind of environment you know, in, in our lives. It takes a lot of effort, as you know, to, to get here. And so honor the beauty of that, of that silence. It will be of tremendous value to you. There are a few things I just want to mention, which most of you are very familiar with but just might be of some help as beginning to embark on this journey. It's remembering that it's completely natural that there will be many cycles of ups and downs. This is how it's going to be. If you have the notion that you're going to start today and every day is going to get better and better and better and more and more blissful, and <laughs> it is not like that. You know, sometimes when you get on airplanes, they, they, you're all seated, but they repeat the destination to make sure that that's where everybody's going. This is your, this is your last chance. To <laughs> if you think this is a bliss trip, you're on the wrong airplane. <laughs> it is not that. There will be innumerable cycles. So know that. And if you know, and if you can remember it at the times when you're going through the ups and downs, it's easier to stay balanced behind it. You know, it's just like the change of weather, and it's okay. You know, there are times when you're feeling bored and restless and painful sensations in the body. It's all okay. This is just part of the present. Sometimes it is tremendously exhilarating, you know, and rapturous, and the mind's filled with joy and happiness. And then that changes again, too. So sometimes we, as I say, we all know this, but the more deeply we can take it in now, 
the easier will be uh, the retreat for you. Ajahn Chah had a very uh, good line. He said, don't be deceived by your moods. And that's because the different moods come and it's so easy to get so identified and lost and caught up with the feeling or mood of the moment. And it's all just passing. One technique that I used, this was quite early in my practice, and one of the things that happens over time in practice, and this, by time I mean you know, many, many years, it seems like the amplitude of the swings sometimes get less. You know, there's still a lot of changes, but the mind is kind of evened out a little bit. But I remember in the beginning going through very big swings, and I would be tremendously depressed. This was when I was practicing in Bodh Gaya in India. You know, feeling very lonely, very isolated, very cut off, really down. But there was never any doubt for me. And I just, I knew that this is what I wanted to be doing. So at a certain point, I just developed this kind of little technique of reminding myself, kind of in the depths of my depression, my meditative depression, in six months, I'm not going to even remember this sitting. And then I think, no, 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 six months, five months, four months, three months. Probably by next week I won't remember the sitting. And just that extrapolation you know, of my mind it kind of eased, took me out of being so caught up and so identified and thinking was so solid. Um, we need to remember, this, these are just reflections that help us keep balance and help us keep open. So even when these big storms come through, you know, as they will, it's okay. Let me be with the storm. Let me experience what that is like. Okay, so to reflect a little bit and to remember of the inevitable ups and downs, and this is part of it, Another very helpful thing is to be on guard for another meditative phenomena which is called Vipassana brilliance. Because you'll be sitting and all of a sudden you will have this most brilliant creative idea about something. You know, it's about the book that you're going to write or the building you're going to build or the next project or you're untangling your life's dilemmas or whatever it is. But somehow in the stillness of the retreat, our ideas become so creative. And they do. I mean, they're actually, the more silent we get, the more creative the mind becomes, which is a wonderful opening, but it can also be tremendously seductive. I spent months in my early practice uh, designing meditation centers. And now, as you know, we're planning this long-term practice and I have the chance to actually do it, (laughs) which is tremendous fun. But all those months back there of just thinking about it were really useless. So I I came up with a, a little mantra that I think will be helpful 
if you use it regularly. And the particular mantra is, nothing is worth thinking about. Uh. <laughs> and I don't mean to say that, you know, in our life in the world, because there are some things that we need to think about, but in the context of the retreat and in the context of the meditation practice and the level that we want to explore, from this perspective, nothing is worth thinking about. Because insight and understanding is not intellectual, it's not conceptual, it's intuitive. There's a, there's a very nice phrase in, in the Zen teachings of Huang Po, he talks about sudden wordless understanding. That's how the deepening of insight happens. We're just in our experience, in awareness, moment after moment, and then spontaneously and effortlessly and Oh, yeah. We just see something in a different way. We understand something. We're in relationship to experience in a different way. It doesn't come from thinking about things. Of course, our mind is so in the habit of thinking, as you know, that lots of thoughts will come. So I'm not suggesting that we're supposed to be suppressing our thoughts and that they're not going to come, not at all. What I am suggesting is that we try to remember not to be seduced by them. To really see thought itself as another empty phenomena, just like everything else. You'll have plenty of opportunity to practice this. And so this is a big arena. One of the gifts of dropping beneath the level of thought is that it takes us out of our obsession with our own particular individual story and it drops us into that place of much more universal awareness and experience where we are really in touch with what is in common to all of us. So this is a great relief, just to be able to drop our story a little bit. Now as we all gather here for this three months, something very special, it's a special time at IMS, you know, throughout the whole year, and many of you have been here for shorter courses, it's different. You know, this really a time here, it's the most settled time in the year at IMS. And it's like a dropping in to another level. To me, sometimes it almost feels like three-month course consciousness, you know, in this depth and commitment to practice, it feels almost like it just attracts the Dharma Devas you know, the deva protectors of the Dharma. I don't know whether you'd like to take that literally or metaphorically, but however, that some teachers talk of a cover. You know, there's like a cover of protection in this kind of practice, in this depth of practice, in this commitment to practice. And it's wonderful. It's, it's, it's 
just so rare in the world. The Dalai Lama, uh, he had a very nice phrase. He said, when people are practicing the Dharma, it's like resting in the lap of the Buddha. That's such a nice image. (laughs) (laughs) So, that's the general framework. There are a few specific things I wanted to mention, and then maybe we can open it for questions or discussion, if you like. Just a few things about tomorrow in the schedule, uh, which you may have noticed. There'll be a simple go-around in the morning after the 8.15 sitting, just for a chance for everybody to introduce themselves. Uh, it's, not, it's not a big thing. And the go-around in the beginning of this retreat usually goes quite quickly. The one at the end of the retreat needs some restraint. <laughs> uh, in the afternoon, uh, a friend of ours who's uh, a wonderful Feldenkrais practitioner, uh, Joseph Delagrate, He's going to be coming, and this is optional if you like, uh, but just to be guiding some Feldenkrais movement, particularly geared to sitting posture, and just to help get some understanding of uh, ways to sit that might be most comfortable for the body. So that I think is a two. Or I think it's a two tomorrow. Um, third thing is you've probably seen the signs up. Uh, about uh, the digging and blasting that you know will be going on. Now there are two ways to hold this. <laughs> One way is to be annoyed and irritated, and the other way is to delight in the fact that after five or more years <laughs> of trying to find a septic solution, uh, a very good one has evolved, and this is actually the process of accomplishing it. Uh, So in terms of IMS and everything, uh, benefit for all generations of yogis, it's a great thing that it's happening. Uh, And it's also making possible, actually, uh, the building of the long-term center, which is going to be back in the woods, but it's that line which makes building there possible. Uh, So... uh, You can practice some mudita (laughs) with all those sounds. The last thing that I want to mention is, as you know, there are uh, five of us teaching. Um, And we all come from slightly different perspectives and have different personalities and a somewhat different range of experience. Uh, it's a tremendous team. There's a tremendous wealth you know, of Dharma experience in the teaching team for this course. It's, I think it's quite rare you know, in the West, uh, the level uh, of experience. But it's important to know that you will be hearing things from different slants, from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. The best way to handle that is simply to be open to all of this, 
take what's useful and leave what's not. You know, because sometimes you may even hear things that on the surface of it may seem contradictory. Perhaps at a deeper level of understanding, you would see that they're not. But that potential is always there when you have uh, a range of presentation. It's fine, and it's really what enriches the course. You'll get a very wonderful spread you know, of Dharma teachings. So hold it in a very easy, loose way. And again, really take in what's useful to you, and if something is unclear or confusing, or fine, just let it be. Do you have any questions that are coming up for you, either about what's happening in these few days or in your thoughts about the retreat? Yeah, uh, I will explain it now and we'll also be actually practicing. There are four uh, qualities of mind which are called in Pali the Brahma Viharis or they're translated as the divine abodes and they are the feeling or the qualities of mind of loving kindness which is metta, compassion, sympathetic joy which is joy in the delight of others, or joy in the happiness of others. So I was just thinking in terms of when you hear the sound thing of all these happy yogis, you know, who will benefit, that was the, the sense. And the last of them is equanimity. You know, but. And also, with regard to that, and I don't think the, I don't think the loud sounds are going to be lasting that long, uh, but it's also to know, and this it takes some experience to realize this. Um, it is not in the slightest way a hindrance to practice. Not at all. And anybody who has practiced in Asia knows this. No, I mean, in the monasteries, I've spent months in situations where they were banging right outside of my window. You know, or Not just once. I mean, I've been in many situations over the years, in India, in Burma, amazing, continual, unpleasant sound. And at first, my mind went through very heavy reactions. You know, I was really angry and upset. And when I finally relaxed behind it all, okay, it's it's just what it is, it's just sound. It was totally fine and... The practice went right along. It was not it was not a hindrance in the slightest. And so just to know that, so you don't you don't waste your time lost in thought about how this is disturbing your practice. Because the real practice in that is the actual learning not to be disturbed. That's an opening. And that's just and that may be a process. You know, so don't don't get self-judgmental if you find yourself disturbed, but just to have that basis of understanding that the problem is not the sound. 
And then so we just you kind of work the inner relationship until it's finally perfectly okay. Yeah. And th- this is going to be nothing compared to... <laughs> I mean, really. This <laughs> well, it's really a tremendous delight to be together. This is, most of you know, this is my first three-month course back since uh, the sabbatical I took from teaching. Uh, so it's a great, I'm very enthusiastic about being here. So I hope you are as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.